Welcome to Five Things About. I'm Sylvie Van Wall. The Indigenous Design Past, Present, Future Symposium at Melbourne School of Design brought together local and international design practitioners to explore the role of Indigenous design. Mpeti Morajali, owner and founder of MMA Design Studio in South Africa, presented the keynote lecture. While at the university, he caught up with symposium convener and University of Melbourne lecturer Jeff Greenaway to discuss his journey as an architect in South Africa, architecture's role in inclusion and exclusion, and why he designs baggy space. We're here at the Melbourne School of Design and we're welcoming a fantastic speaker as part of the Indigenous Design Symposium here at the University of Melbourne. And we've got Mpeti Amorajali, who's going to be the signature keynote. And my name's Jeff Greenaway, I'm the convener of, of the symposium, and we're going to have a, a bit of a conversation around this notion of Indigenous design. So, Mpeti, I had a few questions that I wanted to ask, and the first one really is around the thematic of the symposium, go back to where you came from, is kind of a, a tagline to capture an idea. What was your reflections when you read that as the sort of thematic or the starting point to have this conversation around Indigenous design? Well, my initial reaction was, well, where do I come from and why am I being asked to go back to it? Obviously, in the context of current struggles we have around migration and where people come from and where they belong and where they don't belong, I thought it was quite a provocative statement if you look at current global issues around migration. However, if you look at it at a broader perspective, looking at where we as humans come from, then I think it's quite a profound statement in that we have to go back to our humanity. And that for me has been how I've, I've tried to imagine what the symposium is about. It's about us retracing our steps and going forward to a new humanity, if you like. Yeah, well, I think you've captured really nicely the essence, the undercurrent of, of what that was really talking to. And from an Indigenous perspective, often it's about that connection to country, going back to your roots and to your history and, and understanding how history and memory informs the present mm-hmm. and the future. So it, it does have many layers to it. Yes. Now, I'd agree with that. And obviously, being from South Africa, Southern Africa, this is where the, the history of humanity started. So, in a sense, the indigeneity of all of us as humans is all linked back to to where I'm coming from. So, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to architecture as a a means of, you know, you could describe it as cultural expression? My background, I was born in Lesotho. My origins are in Lesotho, which is that tiny country which is in the heart of South Africa. I think it's the only country, apart from the Vatican, which is totally surrounded by another country. But I trace my roots to the whole region of southern Africa. Um, As people moved around, we originally started in KwaZulu-Natal in Bergville and moved across the mountains into Lesotho. And so I grew up mostly being an artist until I got to the age where I had to make a decision about career and things like that. And I was pushed in the direction of architecture by my parents who were building a house at the time. So I got a a scholarship to go to the University of Cape Town. I studied my degree in Cape Town. After that, I did a post-professional degree at the Bartlett in London. 
And then I went on to teach at Witz University in Johannesburg in the School of Architecture. And during that period, I started my own practice, which has been going now for about 20 years. So I still do the odd teaching, but mostly in practice. And have you found any challenges along this journey in order to get to become an architect? There have been a lot of challenges. I think when I started studying in South Africa, we were still under the system of apartheid, which means black people were very restricted in where they could go, what they could do. And therefore one had to almost be resourceful in terms of finding things that could inspire you, that was outside of the cultural hegemony of, of you know, coming from an oppressed people. So I think that those were some of the struggles that, that one had to go through. And then, yeah, even practicing as an architect under apartheid is very difficult because architecture is so close to power. And if you're excluded from that power, then you, you, you almost can't really practice the way that architecture is supposed to be practiced. But fortunately, 94 happened and we could find a new space of expression, which is where a lot of the interest in the indigenous ways of expressing came up in my career. So do you feel that the industry within South Africa engages with this notion of connection to indigenous knowledge systems and the value that indigenous perspectives can actually bring to the built environment? I think in, in very few instances. Well, I guess there's, there's two types of, of practice. The one is the self-conscious practice where the state is trying to represent itself in a way that talks to the indigenous knowledge systems. So these are very few instances of projects that are around culture and heritage. But I think in a way that a lot of architects have been grappling with transforming our cities to take into account people who have a rural background and who have migrated into the cities and come with their own indigenous cultures and how do you adapt parts of your city to accommodate you know, those kind of practices which were not accommodated before. So I think there are glimpses of, of where that is happening, but I don't think it's enough. I don't think a lot of it is, is purely following on, on what is the norm around the world. And do you feel that there is a capacity through particularly architecture to infuse a sense of identity within the, the mechanisms of how we practice and, and how we express ourselves within uh, the, the mechanism of architecture and, and how, how it projects within the public realm? I think there is. I think part of it is how you arrive at, at your solutions. Like in South Africa, at some point it was legislated that you have to go through a consultative process with all the stakeholders identified for a particular project. And a lot of the early projects, there was a lot of intense consultation. And I think that's almost as important as the final product in that that process means that people get a sense of, of ownership of what's being developed. And then, of course, the, 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 the final product is, is really battling with how you infuse an identity into a space that makes people feel that they belong and that they're not being excluded because a lot of architecture is about exclusion rather than inclusion. So, yeah, I think you can, you can infuse, the, especially the public space, 
it's a it's an urgent requirement for us i think and i think you've raised a really important point about the the methodology the process of how you get to the built form outcome is very much infused by a connection to a conversation with people with the key contributors and stakeholders in a way through a sort of co-design process rather than necessarily the designer as the um, the main author of the outcome. Yes, that's absolutely correct. My, my particular method is also to design what I call baggy space, which is space that allows for unintended consequences. So in that way you're allowing institutions to develop and not restricting them spatially in the way that you de- design because these are new new institutions, new times, so there's a lot of things that we don't anticipate happening that will happen. And those should be seen as, as a positive outcome rather than as something you want to restrict. So within the education experience and your learning journey towards architecture, did you experience a connection to your culture in that process of learning? Or was that essentially sidelined in favour of, a, I guess, a Western construct of how we might teach architecture? No, definitely at the time it was, it was totally repressed. Obviously the bigger narrative was that uh, indigenous practices were not recognised as, as having any validity. So you almost had to seek out your own resources to be able to, to, to research some of the indigenous practices or vernacular architecture, whatever you call it. Because, the, as I say, the bigger narrative of, of apartheid at the time was that these practices have no value. So do you see architecture as being complicit in the colonial project that is illustrated by things like the apartheid Absolutely. experience? I think apartheid was a classical example of the use of architecture to do social engineering. You know, people were literally designed separately. The natural environment, natural barriers were used to kind of suggest that these are almost God-ordained barriers. The way that cities were designed, the way that buildings were designed, uh, all public institutions had separate entrances for people with different colours. Hospitals, for example, had either separate hospitals or separate entrances. And what was interesting in that example is that all the hospital functions were generally mixed except where anything that had to do with blood. So with bones, you could go and get your bones fixed in in mixed areas. But anything to do with blood, they had to separate people by kind of race. Um, so it, 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 it teaches you an understanding of how the philosophy was then embedded into, into the design of buildings. So the spatial organisation of places was configured to reinforce that mindset. Absolutely, absolutely. At every level, from the level of city planning right down to separation of toilets and benches that you sat on and all of that. So as apartheid has now crumbled, there's a a process, I, I guess, around reconstructing new narratives, new opportunities, and in a way disentangling some of those inhibitors to a sense of inclusion. How is that sort of unfolding now? Well, as you know, buildings are almost the the most enduring legacy of apartheid because these are structures that stand forever. The way that people were 
separated into ghettos and suburbs, that is enduring. And the challenge has always been how do you break those patterns? Because they're they not only enduring physically, but I think also mentally as a result. People still feel that they belong to these separate places. And to get people to move away from thinking that they are restricted is part of the challenge. I think because of a lot of in-migration from rural areas, that has kind of been the most important interventions to have happened in our cities. How do we accommodate these new practices? And a lot of it has been around mobility, because we're like a commuter society. People move between the rural areas and the urban ones quite a lot. So the taxi ranks, the bus ranks, the stations have become the new cultural centers, if you like, because of that that migration, that very big migratory population. So that has, has been the way in which we're trying to transform cities. I think in some instances you find that, you know, some of the real estate companies and the real estate industry tries to push back against integration because the way that cities were developed exclusively have now become less race-exclusive but more class-exclusive. And so there's always a struggle between inclusion and exclusion, between wanting to keep a piece of the city for a certain class and in other attempts trying to integrate. So that is kind of a struggle that's happening and creating the forms of our cities as we proceed. And with the movement pattern of people through a country where you have people coming from further afield or from uh, rural or regional centres coming into the cities, is there an opportunity there to talk to those connections to country and landscape and other areas to infuse cities with a, a, a vibrancy or a, a connection to landscape? I think there are opportunities. What's very interesting is when you look at a lot of the cultural practices or even religious practices of people coming from rural areas and how they've adopted parts of the cities where it's creating a church in a parking basement over the weekend or using the plaza of a train station as a temporary church. These for me are very interesting ways in which the kind of rural culture is beginning to find places within the city to continue its its practice. And I think if we paid more attention to that, we would create much more identity in terms of how our cities should accommodate its, its indigenous populations. It reinforces a, an innovation, a, a sophisticated reappropriating of, of space. Exactly. And obviously, you know, with our cultures which were interrupted in their natural development, that reappropriation has become quite an important way of, of you know, being able to adopt, as you say, in appropriate spaces has become part of the culture in, in, in a very central way. And as a practitioner, you, you have a practice, you're, you're engaging in the grassroots of, of realising architecture. So what sort of current or recent projects inspire you or are there other influences external to South Africa which have inspired you in terms of your own trajectory? Uh, inspiration comes from all over the world, I think. A lot of the work we have been doing has been related to urban regeneration. So looking at 
examples from Latin America, for example, the conditions are very similar to ours, and how they've you know adopted particular views towards the informal sector, the informal housing, Asia as well. The whole question of informality and how you how you deal with it in architecture, whether you seek to formalize or you value it in its own you know in the way that it's been developed. I think those new ways of working, what we call undisciplined practices, and learning from those, for me, are quite quite interesting and have always been part of, of practice on the one hand. On the other hand, has been working with more, through the agency of the state, in trying to build the nation, what they call nation building, and creating social cohesion. So these are the... The more self-conscious projects, which really are, you know, memorialize who we are as a people and where we've come from, and yeah, in that way, are attempting to build that idea of of of, of a new nation. And what is the role of of indigenous or First Nations practitioners in this space? And is there an emerging cohort of First Nations practitioners in South Africa? I think not directly as architects. But I think a lot of architects are now seeking to collaborate with First Nations people in either art or architecture, public art, architecture projects, and also in the activation of, of spaces beyond just designing them. But part of how we activate spaces is through rituals. And therefore, that's, in a way, finding a more ephemeral way of dealing with architecture through through the activation of space, through rituals. And that has, has, has there's a lot of collaboration happening with First Nations people on that. So there is, in a sense, a bit of a convergence between art and cultural expression and architecture and landscape fusing together to create an even richer response by virtue of those collaborative models. Yes, particularly with art, because architecture is more conservative. It's much more difficult to deal with that kind of nexus. But particularly with art, public art projects, events, that, that kind of infusion is, is happening and kind of architecture tags, tags on at the end. But yeah, through, through specifically art projects, you find that there is seeking inspiration from, from other sources, which now is more like the indigenous sources. Because I think people have realized what a rich trove it is of inspiration. That makes your practice unique in the world. So MMA Design Studio has really been a pioneer in in South Africa as a practice which is led by uh, a key practitioner who's drawing on connections to your own history and and culture. So what projects are, are you excited about in your own practice which is starting to really interrogate some of these ideas? Interesting project. I think a lot of our projects are in the educational sphere and cultural. We're doing some work for the university in Kimberley, which is in the northern cape of the country, which is where a lot of First Nations people have been, the kind of area that people inhabited, you know, in the Kalahadi Desert and coming down to the northern cape. So we're having, beginning to have interesting conversations about how people who come from that kind of tradition experience these university buildings. And, you know, right down to small things like how you treat acoustics for people who are used to wide open spaces where they come from. 
and therefore when they speak to each other you project your voice and they are very loud because you come from open spaces and now all of a sudden you're too loud for the university building because it's not designed for people who shout loudly or speak loudly to each other small things like that which are very interesting things like how do you design a threshold that allows people to be able to move in and out of a building without the kind of a formal entrance that says now you're allowed in or you're not allowed in are there ways that we can you know, achieve that that encourage people to feel at home in the building so that that conversation is is beginning to happen through the design of of the university because it's a new university there hasn't been one in that area before so that that's quite an exciting project for me So it's drawing really on a, a cultural nuance and, and talking about some of that sort of fine-grained detail of how you can infuse something with a particular sensibility that talks to some of those understandings of, of cultural connections. Yes, and, and more at a, almost at a psychological level rather than an aesthetic level only because, of course, there's a lot of interest in the aesthetics of, of being culturally appropriate. But I think... What's interesting is also at a, at a psychological level, as I was saying, how do you, you create environments that allow people to feel that they are all part of you know, the same journey and they're not coming in as foreigners, if you like. So as a design practitioner myself and having an Indigenous heritage as well, I seek to draw on a, on a deep history of this place, and it's estimated to be somewhere in the order of 67 to 80,000 years. So there's some deep history there, in, in a similar sense to South Africa, that there is a, a long and, and deep and abiding history that resides in, in place. So can you see some parallels and some learnings that could be taken from a connection to Australia? The, in fact, the, the first time I came here was precisely because I was looking for those parallels. And I, I think we can see them. I think an attitude towards landscape, for example, an attitude towards dwelling and what it means to be of this world and not almost outside of the world observing in. Yeah, the relationship to landscape, I think, is fundamental. The parallels that can be drawn on it. And I think the question is, within a contemporary environment, how do we then recreate spaces or reinterpret traditions that are as long as that, but that can have a place and a meaning in today's current urbanized and modern world. So that's, that's the parallels, I think, that, that, that can be drawn. So do you see that as a, as a tension or as an opportunity? Tensions are opportunities. <laughs> I think it, there are definitely tensions, but I think that's the stuff of, of, of good architecture, working with precisely those tensions. But yeah, it, it means that you have to be a bit tentative in the way you approach your design because, as I said before, there's unexpected outcomes. And it's almost as if you could design and let occupation happen but still keep the design process open. So that because we're building new institutions, you have to let the institution grow and then build something around it and then let it grow further. And it sounds like something which is much more organic and, and fluid and, and flexible and nimble rather than this sort of rigid linear process. Absolutely, absolutely it is. But unfortunately because of the way our projects are structured, you know, you get 
it's a capital project, it has a budget, it has a timeline, and when we finish building, we're off and never to come back again. means that sometimes that fluidity can't be built into the project. We have tried on occasion to, for example, use materials that need maintenance regularly, annually, because in the past this was part of the tradition that every year after the rains or before the rains, communities used to come together to maintain and put, re-put up a fence, or, which we still do now. We paint our houses just before Christmas. And in that way, the act of maintenance becomes almost a cultural practice, a social practice. So it brings people together beyond just maintaining, but it's, it, it's, it's maintaining the society in a way. But obviously now we, we build permanent. People don't want to maintain things, so you build once and for all. So that, that kind of practice is lost in a sense. My final question is really around that intersection between Indigenous and non-Indigenous. There seems to be an acute interest here in Australia around how we can start to amplify opportunities to express Indigenous identity. So what do you say to the non-Indigenous practitioners of, of what can be learnt or how one can connect to Indigenous cultures as part of design inspiration or as part of our um, way of knowing or broadening the frame of reference of how we understand architecture? Well, I think Indigenous practice, basically, if you look at the research is quite close to what currently the interest around neuroscience and architecture is finding. It's just that they have a more scientific method of explaining what, what they call embodied practices, where we are not looking purely from a kind of a rational thought process into architecture, but understanding architecture as an embodied practice. So you're not only looking through your eyes, but you're looking through your skin, you're looking through your feelings. And this is what indigenous knowledge has always been about. So it's, 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 a, it's a kind of practice that, although it goes way back, it's part of the future now when you look at the, the interest in neuroscience in architecture. They're saying exactly what indigenous people have been saying for all these years. So yeah, things like you know, embodied practices, things like animism, where inanimate objects are imbued with a kind of a spirituality. This is what we have been teaching in architecture. When you, you take people onto a site and get them to understand the genus loci of, of site, these are all practices that indigenous knowledge has been doing and is kind of expert at. So I think what I would say to people who feel that they're non-indigenous is like you're going back to the essentials of architecture which we all, because we're all embodied people, we all have access to. It's just that we need to relearn how we connect with place in, a, in, in that different way. Well, Mpeti, it's been a terrific opportunity to have a conversation with you and to, to learn from some of your experiences, so thank you very much for the conversation. Thank you, I enjoyed that as well. Thanks. Thanks to Mpeti Morjali. This podcast was produced by James Rafferty, who was recorded in the Melbourne School of Design by Jeffrey Greenaway. Five Things About is created by Dr Andy Horvath and is a production of the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on the 18th of July. I'm Sylvie Van Wall. Thanks for listening. <laughs>